Some years ago, I came across a writing by the Reverend Howard Thurman, who's a co-founder of the Church of the Fellowship of All Peoples in San Francisco. And this, what he wrote, has continued to inspire my practice of equanimity in around my family, around my teachings and the world. So this is from a collection of his meditations called Deep is the Hunger. Deep is the Hunger. How may we work in the world courageously and intelligently on behalf of a decent world without despair and complete fatigue? What are the resources for personal rehabilitation and renewal that we may be able to look out on life with its vicissitudes of cruelty and transient joys with quiet eyes and a tranquil spirit? So it's important to stop sometimes in our lives and ask ourselves these kinds of questions. What are our resources for personal rehabilitation and renewal? How can we look out upon the world with quiet eyes? So seeing the world with quiet eyes is one of the subjective experiences that we have when there is equanimity when we've developed equanimity and we actually feel that it comes to our rescue when we're in the world and we feel ourselves not able to open or maybe we're reactive or there's all kinds of ways which we're not seeing clearly. So this seeing the world with quiet eyes, this is the title of my talk this evening. And the subjective experience is a very calm inner quiet. It's a sense of balance, but not distance. It's a sense of connectivity, but not overwhelm. It's a sense of being able to see clearly because we're not being influenced by praise and blame, gain and loss, and we react to it with either attachment or aversion. This afternoon I spoke about um, how we practice it and what, how equanimity is part of the four divine emotions. And that's what one of my teachers, uh, Ayakema, earlier in my practice, called these Brahma-viharas. Uh, translated directly is divine abodes. But she called them the divine emotions. And I like the way that she said that because a lot of times we hear about equanimity and we think, oh, well, when we have this experience or this way of relating to life, then we'll just be kind of a blah personality. You know, we won't have any emotions. And what will be left? How will we, what will we face the world with in our um, ways of being really human? And so I like the word emotions in a way because it infers that emotions aren't always that anger and sadness and uh, emotions that kind of not allow us to see so clearly. But they can be these divine kind of emotions that give us a sense of being able to see clearly what's going on. This is equanimity. And when equanimity combined with metta is able to face the things of the world, 
it's able to bring a kindness to the world with, along with that clarity. When it faces suffering or dukkha, it's able to take a step and really act in the world. Do something to help. Do something of benefit. And maybe sometimes it's not doing anything because that's the best benefit. And when there's joy in the world, we're able to rejoice with those who are joyful without comparing, without uh, feeling jealous, envious, without tearing down that person, which often happens when another person is experiencing joy. We don't want that. We don't like that. So equanimity uh, is something that accompanies all of these first three divine emotions and makes them really powerful because of its ability uh, to help us see more clearly what's going on. So it's an important subject to reflect upon because in our culture, what happens when we feel that everything's so accessible to us, the speed of information about the news of the world continuously triggers reactions from us. And we've heard a lot these days about how it's important to take a break from the news once in a while. If, if you don't turn on the news for a week usually, you're, you probably will look at it and see the same old things happening. It's, it's not that much different. I mean, some things, I kind of depend on some of my friends to tell me the news because I can't look at it all the time. It's just their judgments and how I want it to be and pushing away how I think it is and I don't like it. And I can't seem to find that place all the time inside of me that has <clears throat> a clear calmness so I can see more clearly. <clears throat> I've been hearing about this place in Japan where you can go where there's absolutely no access to the electronic news and um, you, you can be just totally away from that, from all the Wi-Fi signals and the cell signals and all the other signals. And some, I met some very, um, some very down-to-earth people on the shuttle when I was in San Francisco recently going somewhere on a shuttle. And um, they were people, you know, when, they, when you get in an airport, don't you see most people looking down and they're <laughs> doing this? Or you can see a family of people together and they're just kind of all on their <laughs> devices. And so um, the, these were people just like us, you know, they come into the shuttle and there they are, you know, family of four and they're on their devices and they're talking to one another and saying, I wish we could go to this place in Japan where there's... (laughs) They kind of have to get way far away from it in order to really have some um, renunciation and it's it's so addictive, isn't it? So we're continuously triggered um, through learning new things. Of course, it's wonderful to learn new things from those um, resources. But it's just continually triggered by wanting more of what we learn, by reacting to what we learn, 
by having judgments and opinions and depending on what side of the political fence you're on or the various different sides. So uh, it's really hard to maintain a sense of equanimity when we've got that bombardment all the time. We need a, a break from all that. So there are situations immediately around us, um, you know, from our own families and our people that we work with, where they could be really highly evolved people, and yet there's stuff that happens, and we, we wonder, you know, like, what? You know, how can, you're so highly evolved, and, and then I look at myself and I think, oh, yeah, same thing happens to me, <laughs> you know? It's like we all have our places where we're really vulnerable, and we can't see as clearly as we would like to see. We can't really act in the world with that complete uh, clarity of mind. But, you know, of course we do our best and everything helps. So not only that, it's not just from, you know, the news and the outer world and our close situations in the world, but we react to our own minds. I mean, so many of you, and I understand because I'm there too, something comes up in our own minds and we cringe from what we just thought of. Or, you know, it's like we see what just came up in our minds and we're constantly judging ourselves for just the habit patterns that come up. So you'll notice, if you remember, in the equanimity practice we did this afternoon, we're trying to develop equanimity not just through the outer events of the world, but really turning our attention to what's going on inwardly And that's actually a more important place to develop equanimity in relationship to what's already going on. And it's the most intimate thing in our lives is what's going on in our own hearts and minds and to develop equanimity in relationship to that. We can't even hardly get to what's going going on in the outer world and really face it because we have so many judgments and opinions of what's going on about ourselves. There are so many things that come up, a a thought comes up about something or other, you know, something really simple like Starbucks. Whoa, I wish I could have Starbucks right now. And the mind goes off on a bit of that tangent, you know, pleasant feeling, attachment to the pleasant feeling. It goes right into the subject matter and we're lost for a few minutes or more to that. So we see you know, there are these layers that we're having reactivity to all the time. And this is the way of the world. That's, this is what is called samsara, this kind of vicious cycle happening over and over again. And to distance ourselves from that our consumer society and the advertising world, um, and this is the way it is, I'm not putting down ourselves or the advertising world, lures us with opportunities to encourage an obsession of wanting and accumulating, of feeding and normalizing addiction and craving. I mean, it's so normal to... It wasn't too long ago I saw an 
headline somewhere in some city, increase your desire. And, and that's supposed to be, you know, like really good. Like, <laughs> increase your desire for whatever. Maybe, uh, you know, it has to do with lust or it has to do with perfume or whatever, whatever it is. And none of that is really bad. It's just where can we find our balance with all of it? So there's entertainment of all kinds to escape and avoid the pleasant, the unpleasant feelings inside. When you know, when we go off on fantasy, it's either because the wanting is so strong for the pleasant, or the aversion is so strong we have to get away from it and run towards the pleasant. That's what's happening in when we go off in fantasy all the time, all the time, running away from the unpleasant running towards the pleasant. So, this is a culture we live in. And not so long ago, it was probably last year, there were several articles about living in this culture of escapism. And so, here we are in the Dharma, and what we're trying to transform are the ways that we're so lost in ignorance and delusion. And yet, living in this culture of escapism, it's always like trying to feed that more and fill that more. And so, we need places where it really supports us and gives us skills to see through that ignorance and delusion. And that's what we're doing here. The whole thing about awareness and wisdom, it's it's kind of the the main and the major thing that we're doing in a venue like this, in an environment like this. So it's understandable that we feel agitated and vulnerable. I mean, a lot of what Alexis and I have been speaking about boils down to the vulnerability that we feel in life. It's no wonder, because there's all these vicissitudes, all these ups and downs, and where are we in that? We're just bounced around all the time, not just by the praise and blame out there, but how we're reacting to that praise and blame all the time, unknowingly. So this anxiety that is, is so prevalent in our culture now, this depression that's so prevalent this feeling of vulnerability where we can't really um, stabilize ourselves in something that, that makes us feel like we can stand in a place where we can feel spacious and see clearly. And so these are the practices we're learning here. So the Buddha talked about the eight worldly conditions as a way of understanding how to be with these, this place of vulnerability that we find ourselves in. We're finding the, the, we're in between this flux of all the time. So they are, I've mentioned them a few times already, the four pairs of praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, pleasure and pain. There's, there's a lot of other ones and a lot of us are facing now birth and death. You know, coming to a place of seeing how fragile 
we're be- what more and more we're becoming because we're getting older. Not all of you, but some of you, including myself, and also the ways that we learn how to be with it with grace and acceptance. We're learning that, but we're we're also seeing. Um, and, and you that, who are younger, who you know, just kind of see the whole world of you ahead of you that you know, give you a lot of support and um, happiness that you can see what your goal is and your passion is and you really want to go for it. And it's helpful for you to come to understand that the way you can face that along the way, the Dharma has a lot of skills for doing that. Those of us who are older, we see the preciousness of life so much, don't we? Like we I'm 68 this year. When I was 48, that was like that long ago, 20 years ago. I may have 20 more years to live if I'm lucky. And so what am I going to do in the rest of my life? It's what I do now is really, really precious. And I hope that those of you who are younger can feel that preciousness of life even now and to really make use of your lives. So in life, it's true. As human beings, we like to be praised, no matter how old we are. You know, We like to be praised and we don't like to be criticized. We like to have gain and more and more of it in different ways, gaining knowledge and spiritual understanding and physical strength. And we don't like to feel loss. We like approval. We don't like to have disapproval or rejection. We like pleasure and we don't like pain. It's very normal. External conditions are constantly affecting our thoughts and our emotions and our mental states and it feels very unstable there all the time. At least I'm speaking the truth from where my life is. Sometimes I feel elated. It can really be, you know, on one side of the um, on one side of the fence and the other side is like I can really feel depressed. But there's an ability to be with it in a way that sees this is the way it is, it's not permanent, and basically the end result is I can deal with this. And sometimes I can't, but I come to the place of, okay, I can deal with this. So His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, wrote something that I came across. I like to to read, of course, like all of you, his something that comes from him because he can be so, so wise but also so down-to-earth like the, the bathroom thing I talked about earlier. So this, this really helps me and Alexis, this, this writing. He, he says, um, he talks about the eight worldly conditions and then he says, even animals probably have them in some slight measure. I think all of us are concerned in particular about maintaining a good reputation. For example, when I'm up here on the throne teaching from time to time, somewhere in the back of my mind there appears the thought, how am I doing? (laughs) Are people going to react to this? (laughs) Are they going to praise me? 
Maybe not. Oh, that didn't go so well. Will people criticize me? Whenever this happens, I need to catch myself and say, Look, now that I am here on this throne transmitting the Dharma teachings, I should not allow myself to be affected like this by the eight worldly concerns. However, we will find that hopes and fears and discursive thoughts of every description will come into our minds. Now here he's saying that it's really our, the inner stuff that we're reacting to. Every, even pure monks might sometimes harbor a concern in the back of their mind about whether or not people give them a few words of praise. The eight worldly concerns can creep upon us quite stealthily and sneakily, and even when we do something virtuous, they will try to find a way to sleep, slip in. So we're pretty normal, Alexis. <laughs> so even after for myself, there's so many times when after a Dharma talk, I'll think of something, you know, I'll be there and getting ready for bed and just to normalize Alexis's feelings about it. And I'll go, oh, why did I say that? And sometime in the next part of the day or maybe two weeks later, somebody would say, you know, when you said that, that was the most important thing I heard in this whole retreat. And it's like, whoa, I criticize myself for stuff that people hear that's really important to them. You know, really, I I should remember that. Because sometimes things that just slip out of our mouths inadvertently are the most important things to people because they're the most authentic, really. So I try to remember that, what the Dalai Lama, His Holiness, said. So with the outer conditions and the inner conditions... A lot of these are not really taken in or seen clearly. Um, sometimes we, we mistake something that's happening on the outer conditions. We, we think it's blame when it's really nothing. And we go into a lot of judgment of ourselves or judgment of that person. We're not seen clearly a lot of the times. And that's why this uh, ability to have that kind of balance what it brings with it is the ability to really see clearly. <clears throat> and this is what's, uh, what allows us then to respond with more wisdom. So it's an important question to ask and answer for ourselves. How can we stay open and connected, yet have an abiding sense of inner balance in our lives? Towards the outer worldly conditions and also the inner conditions, and not be paralyzed by them. Not, be, not allow ourselves to be bombarded by them or manipulated by our own thoughts, reacting in ways that add more suffering to ourselves and the world. How can we stay aware and attentive yet compassionate towards ourselves when we see that we are reacting to the outer conditions with, say, aversion. And then what happens when we, you know, we, we kind of shout out or have kind of a rage thing happening, and then we 
react to that in ourselves with blame and a lot of judgment and a lot of shame. So you've got two levels of suffering going on. You know, the outer suffering that we cause in the world by just just letting it come out. And not only that, so that action took place, so that seed of unwholesomeness or defilement kinds of go it goes into the mind stream. It does this, its cause and effect karma thing and it comes up again as a habit pattern. And then we have to face it over and over again. And then the inner blaming ourselves, feeling shame and judgment. So there's, there's so much suffering in the world. There's so many layers of it. So what we're doing in a retreat like this is we're learning the skills to open to what's really happening instead of how we think it should be and really take a look at it and really be honest with ourselves. And then to have the skills to respond to it in a way that brings benefit to ourselves because we're not putting that karmic thing into the karmic stream of our lives and brings benefit to others. So living in this changing, fluctuating, vicissitude world, to remain calm and clear requires a lot of this place of equanimity, this skill of equanimity. To navigate in this world seeing it with quiet eyes, seeing the world with quiet eyes. So quiet eyes means that we can see clearly. So that's one of the benefits of uh, equanimity, being able to see clearly. Equanimity also implies balance. The subjective experience of this balance is not kind of balancing on a razor's edge where you just have to be so still that you can't go, you can't fall in this way or you can't fall that way, otherwise you're in trouble. So this is why we require ourselves to have a lot more relaxation in the practice because when you're just holding on to this much tension, you're what you're experiencing is tension. You can't really see anything else clearly. So equanimity is more like a mountain. It's more like a wide-based mountain that can take whatever comes to it. And it's just nature. Like I live on a, a mountainside in Maui. It's called Haleakala. And it's 10,000 feet and it has a very wide base. And where I live is about 2,000 feet. And out my window I can see to the top. And so uh, sometimes I see thunder. Sometimes I see lightning. There's a lot of rain sometimes. There are big fires sometimes up there when the forest just gets on fire every 10 or 15 years. And um, there's a lot of sunshine too, of course. And so I see all kinds of conditions. 
And that mountain is just there, sitting there in its really stable stance, experiencing all of nature happening to us. And it really just continues to be very stable there. So that's the feeling of equanimity. It's that wide stance, very stable, a lot of nature going on in the mind, you know, sadness and happiness, elation and depression, gain and loss, thunder and lightning, all of that. And yet that stability can remain. That's a subjective experience of that kind of balance. So it's allowing our mind and hearts to be big enough to contain all that life presents to us, the pleasure and pain and everything in between, and to really survive and thrive. Thrive because of our our ability to be with all of that and knowing our strengths through that ability. We're not just trying to run away from the unpleasant and get into the pleasant so we feel okay. We're dealing with it, so in the dealing with it, applying all these skills that we learn, we're able to really have trust in our ability to be with what happens in the world. We're that mountain, and all this nature is going on, connected to us, too. So knowing how to navigate it in challenging times and knowing the beauty and strength of our minds and hearts in the times that aren't so challenging. I love this quote by Don Juan, a teacher to Carlos Castaneda, and he said, The art of being a spiritual warrior is to balance the terror of being human with the wonder of being human. That's another balance, you know, to balance the the difficulties of life with knowing the beauty and the beauty of our own hearts and the strengths that we have in order to do that. And we learn those strengths because we're not running away. We're really opening and facing life as it is. So in this space, there can be a lot of clarity because we're not seeing through the veils of delusion. We're not seeing through the veils of avoiding and ignoring, the veils of attachment and aversion. What is present before us can be seen because of this very spacious balance. So there's a clarity, there's a balance, and there's a spaciousness. These are three qualities of equanimity. Seeing things as they are. And that happens because of those qualities. And that's why one of the most predominant phrases that people use when they practice equanimity and they tell me about their their episodes where equanimity just spontaneously comes up, is they use a phrase similar to that. This is how it is right now. I always like to add those two little words right now because it's not how it is all the time. It's just how it is right now because it's going to change. So adding those two words uh, make it in line with reality. And otherwise, if you don't add that, it might seem like, you know, this is how it is forever, which is delusion. 
So from that arises some compassionate understanding to take the most skillful action if that is what is called for, or to know if it's better not to say or do anything at all. Maybe that's the wisest option. The Buddha said about the natural law, he said, for one who develops deep abiding equanimity, it is a natural law to know and see things as they are, to know the Dhamma. It's a natural law to know and see things as they are, to know the Dhamma. Manindra, uh, one of my teachers, first teachers, he used to say to me, uh, I'd ask him questions about different things, and he would respond, oh, this is the law, meaning this is how it is. Sometimes he would say, surrender to the law, not, not meaning, you know, put your hands up, the police are in front. <laughs> he would mean, just can you just open to how the law is and, and not fight it, just to surrender to it. The laws of nature, surrender to that. Um, so we might use that phrase this is how it is right now another phrase that people like to use and they, you know, they see gain and loss and make the remark it's a wisdom remark gain and loss arise and pass away this is wisdom this is right view and uh, Alexis and I were talking about, as after doing the equanimity practice this afternoon, how so much of equanimity is embedding this right view in our minds. This view of life as, you know, gain and loss, praise and blame, all of these things arise and pass away. The, the wisdom there is that it's impermanent. So can we just be patient enough for it to do its thing and then wait and see what we need to do in the next moment. So those statements are not like mm, dry statements. They're full of wisdom and they're full of caring. It's actually a very loving statement, accepting the everythingness of life. We're not pushing away what, what we don't like. It's like, okay, I can embrace this part of life too. That loss is a part of life. It's how it is sometimes. I can't remember who said this. It may have been a yogi, just like one of us. It's said that equanimity is love that can encompass everything yet possess nothing. You know, so all of this can happen, and yet we don't have to become attached to it if it's unpleasant or subjected to its manipulation if it's uh, attached to it if it's pleasant or subjected to the manipulation of it if it's unpleasant. <clears throat> so I witnessed this story. Um, and this strong, deep, unconditional love and steady balance in a friend of mine, a yogi friend of mine who lived on Maui. And through some experiences, 
in her life that really encompass a lot of this gain and loss and um, uh, happiness and sorrow. And she said that the Dharma's teaching of equanimity was what helped her through this because she, she practiced equanimity in her life daily. So she gave me permission to tell this story. A few years before I, I wrote this, one of her grown-up sons, he was in his 20s, he just disappeared from, from Maui, from their life, and he was nowhere to be found, and none of his friends were, were saying anything about it. And so she was at a, in great despair, and because she didn't know what was happening to him. And, of course, there was this feeling of loss and sorrow. The family did their best to find out what happened. You know, they didn't know even if he was still alive or where he was. And so she kind of held a vigil for him uh, for quite some time. And so there was patience and steadiness. And I think it was one or two years or perhaps more that she was going through this. And some of you are mothers and know, or parents and know this feeling that one could have of, where is my child? You don't even know if he's dead or alive. It's just an imponderable feeling that I, I, I wouldn't even know how that feels because luckily that's not the case with my own grown children. So there was this great loss and mystery and sorrow, very painful. And her phrase was something like, uh, all beings have their own journey. Because those words for her said so much more. You know, that she was open to the fact of life, that sometimes things happen and you don't know why they happen. They have their own journey. How can we look into somebody else's karmic causes? And um, uh, there was a lot, of course, uh, love and kindness with, within all that as well. So eventually, um, she and her husband decided that it was time to, to move away. There was a lot of sorrow for her. And one of her daughters was uh, living in... Um, Europe and was about to give birth, so she they decided to go there, take a take a long, sell their beautiful home, and take a long trip and and go there and kind of see if they could change the vibration of their lives. So they did that, and on their way to see their daughter, they um, they got a message that their son had reappeared. He was disappeared for a while, and then he reappeared. And so there was this tremendous shift. There was loss, then there was gain. There was sorrow, and there was happiness and relief, of course. And so it was, it was just a wonderful moment for them, for her. And yet, um, there were still some difficulties and problems, and, but she was able to face them because she had faced something so dire. And so... There was great joy for them, and she was honest about her sorrow. She never denied that. She never tried to pretend, oh, you know, I'm above this or I can be with this. And 
She really was with her sorrow during that time. So they arrived at the daughter's place in Europe, and the daughter gave birth to a beautiful child, so there was a lot of joy in that, and a lot of gain for the family. The son had reappeared, a new person was born into their life, and that was beautiful. So while there, not long after they got the news, her other son, not the one who had disappeared, but a younger son, she had shared a a Buddhist um, practice with, a Shambhala practice, and so um, she was very close to him, shared the spiritual path, and she was on this path too, and he tragically died. And this was just all within a few years' time. So they had this birth, and then they had this death. And it was just like, whoa, you know, how could her heart open to all of that? It was really incredible to also be near her and feel her strength and how much she modeled of really being human and authentic and feeling all those feelings inside of her and developing that equanimity towards those feelings inside of her just so honestly and those feelings outside of her towards what was happening to her family and how people thought about that. So we see it around us every day but when it happens so closely to us it's hard for we can't even imagine sometimes. So she said she owed her steadiness and her balance to the Dhamma, to her practice, really, and it saved her life, really saved her life. I met her, um, actually it was after one of these retreats a few years ago, and I met her in Portland and had dinner with her and her husband And she wrote me a note, and she she gave me permission to quote it. She said, I feel most genuine when I can hold in my heart the sorrow of losing Alex, her her son, alongside the love and joy I have for him and who he was. I'm staying connected. It seems to me this kind of loss can either destroy us or make us stronger. And I'm determined to learn to grow from it. The Dhamma has been very helpful. That's what she wrote in her thank you note. And so many principles are there. You know, the ability to be that spacious, to hold everything. The praise and blame that she might have gotten from other people because, you know, what happened to the son who disappeared and... All of that, the birth and loss, uh, birth and death, and outside, inside, all over the place. She really had to deal with a lot. Connecting, staying connected, and gaining strength from it all. So the unfolding of a person's life, when we say that all beings have their own journey, when we use that phrase, as I might offer to you again tomorrow, <clears throat> what we're saying is that the unfolding of a person's life is a result of countless, unknowable, untraceable causes and conditions. 
we, we just really don't know for another person. And we can't blame them, really. A lot of us, we can see, are bounced around by our own karma. And we can't blame ourselves for feeling helpless in that either. So we, we try to remember this every day. You know, all beings have their own journey. And, and see if we can hold their journey with that balance and that still staying connected, even if they can't sometimes. It's a great challenge. It's, it's easier sometimes to run away. But we're missing out on a lot of potential strength we have inside of us. So sometimes the metaphor of the sky is used to describe what it feels like for that spaciousness in ourselves. That we can take it all and see it with quiet eyes. Um, The Buddha would say, develop a mind that is vast like space, where experiences both pleasant and unpleasant can appear and disappear without conflict, struggle, or harm without conflict, struggle, or harm. That's in the Majjhima Nikaya. So, in an experiential way, it can be defined as not being thrown off by events beyond our control. Now, what does that mean? That's pretty disempowering sometimes, isn't it? Like, events beyond our control. We do have influence over what happens in our world. We really don't have complete control. We, just sitting here, we can see, you know, experiences come up, remembrances come up in the mind, weather patterns and all. We can't just say stop. You know, it's because actually, because it's already happening. The causes and conditions for all of that to happen have already occurred. They've done their thing and it's happening. Thoughts arise, emotions arise, mental states arise, pain in the body arises. A lot of things are happening because of many things in the past. We can't figure that out. They say if you try to figure that out, it would cause your head to explode, (laughs) the Buddha would say. So, um, but what we do have influence over is how we respond to them. How we respond. So that's our great influence. And that's what we're learning here. Basically, we're learning how to respond to what happens with awareness, number one. And then with a view that is in alignment with how things are. That's right view. Something that's in alignment with how things are. This is nature. This is how it is. There's a lot to right view. (coughs) Karma. Four Noble Truths. Dependent Origination. It's it's very vast, but we only present what's practical, what we can partake of in the moment. Mostly. So, that's what's helpful in facing the world and in having an influence over 
how we respond. We can respond with right view that's brought in through awareness. We can respond with equanimity to be able to see clearly. That helps us to respond with more powerful loving-kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, patience, all of the beautiful qualities of mind. So we have incredible influence over how the world gets recreated because of our thoughts and our actions and our words. So are we using that power? Are we using that influence that we have? Or are we just being banged around by what comes up? So that's a big question for us. What are we doing in relationship to all of that? We can respond to events of our lives that already are in process by refraining from rushing into reaction out of compulsion or out of habit patterns that are out of our control. Reactions to get even or to be the one that's right or reaction from an uninvestigated judgment about something, about another person or condition. Or we can take time to understand and respond wisely. This is a freedom of choice we have. But we were only able to have the right choice if we can see clearly. If not, we're just seeing through the veils of reactivity all the time. There's a saying, you can do something in an instant that will give you heartache for a lifetime. Because it's we're just coming out of wrong view and reactivity. So I love this um, by the a beautiful woman teacher in the Tibetan tradition, Jetson Khandro Rinpoche. She says, if there is such a thing as cause and effect, then it also contains within it the wisdom of knowing that it can be, we can be a cause of happiness and, re- and liberation. That can come from us because as we respond, we're recreating our world so that in that particular response, there can be uh, some wholesome embedding in our karmic stream. And when that comes up again because of practice, when that comes up again, uh, when something happens, it's very accessible to us and we can use that in the world. So in the moment, in that particular moment, we have a moment of beauty and a moment of uh, wisdom. Maybe there's some compassion there. And that moment will become our past. And in, because we know that we can trust ourselves, there can be many moments like that that can become our future. And so in time we have this deep trust that our present and our past, our future, everything surrounding us can be beautiful, can be full of the potential for more and more liberation. Because we're paying attention to 
what our actions and our speech are. And we're planting seeds like that in our lives to come up again. So I have a story to tell that's gotten a lot of mileage, but it seems to still get some mileage, so I keep telling it. And also someone asked me to tell stories about my children so, and how I was able to get through raising four children and they're now adults and um, they're okay. <laughs> you know, I don't have any really big problems with them. Some, yeah, sometimes there's some, but <laughs> um, I still say, you know, may you please be happy in, <laughs> in my metta practice sometimes. So Manindra, I told you, would say the phrase, surrender to the law. This is how it is. It means surrender to how things are. He's asking me to be in alignment with how things are in life, with right view. So the law is the unfolding, the the truth of the unfolding of the conditions of life, that there is a cause and effect relationship to everything. So... um, Manindra was staying with the family and um, there was a squabble between my youngest daughter and her father. And so I was sitting at a table and I was here facing out that way. Say, for example, and Manindra was here and he was facing this way, so he was kitty-corner to me. And um, there was the squabble was escalating and Manindra was... He was recovering from surgery, and I really wanted it to be wonderful for him and to be healed. And uh, so I had long talks with the kids and the family, and let's you know keep it quiet. And of course, I wanted to look like I was a perfect mother, and that you know there were perfect children around and everything was fine. But. They were starting to shout at one another, and it got really, really bad. And so Manindra was sitting there, and the, their voices were escalating. And the youngest daughter, um, she's given me uh, permission to tell the story, and her father says it's okay, too. So he, he pretty much, he read the story. It was recently written, and he read the story, and he just laughed out loud because he thought it was true. <laughs> all the things that were happening, um, he remembered. And so what happened was he said to her, Therese, if you don't do this, then this and this will happen. You know, you'll get, you can't go to this place and that place. And so she stomped off right around the table, went down the hall, and she went into her room. And she slammed the door as hard as she could. So in the meantime, I'm kind of slinking in my seat and thinking, oh my God, you know, I just want to get away from this. And I'm not looking like the perfect mother anymore. And it's all about my feelings. And oh no, it's about them. And will they please shut up? So he goes to the door and he says, open this door. And she shouts, no. And he says, open this door or I'll kick the door down. And she shouts, go ahead. (laughs) So he does. He kicks the door down. 
it's really bad. It's really, really bad. So Manindra's sitting on this side, and I'm like, oh, my God, you know, this has never happened before, and why is it happening now? So he takes his right uh, hand, and he puts it on. I can still feel his hand. That's why touch is so important. I can still feel that. And he puts it on my left forearm, and he looks at me, and he says, surrender to the law. And that with his, that steadiness, you know, I still remember his steady eyes. And so, so kind. Like, he doesn't, I don't really feel one bit of judgment from, from his heart, from his mind. It just, I was thinking probably in his Indian family, nobody ever raised their voice to one another, you know. So it was so, he was so compassionate. So then I was able to get some, balance in me and walk over and say in a way that wasn't shouting can we just stop this for now and you know understand that they have their karma together and they're going to live it out I can do the best I can but I can't solve their problems with one another so you know they don't have that big of a problem with one another they're really good with one another but you understand that as as parents don't we as you don't even have to be parents it's just like the kids have their own journey you, you can't really you can say go this way because you, i know if you go that way there's going to be a waterfall and you're going to get hurt down this river and they'll say no i want to go where i want to go and they fall down that waterfall, you know. Hopefully you're there to help help them a little bit. And I have been so far. But sometimes they get bumped on and they get hurt and they learn from that. And that's, that's how it is. Our background and circumstances may have influenced who we are, but we are responsible for who we become. That's James Reinhardt. So when we engage in these various facets of our life, we can ask ourselves, am I seeing through the world, seeing the world with quiet eyes? Or is there equanimity here? Is there some balance? Some way that we can check in with ourselves to really see what's going on. Be honest. Are we drawing upon old habit patterns of reactivity? This afternoon I, I talked about the, the near and the far enemy. So far enemy, reactivity, two parts to it, aversion or attachment, depending on what's going on, aversion to the unpleasant, attachment to the pleasant. Those are the two ways we react almost immediately. So we need to have the discernment sometimes to be able to stop and see what's going on here. If there's reactivity in the mind, do we need to say something then, or can we just stop for a little while and wait till the mind quiets down? And that's what, when I say, take out the Dharma duct tape and put it, you know, on your mouth. That's like, wait for a while. And don't say anything until you come to some clarity. So... The far enemy, um, 
the far enemy is called, uh, let's see, I'm still with the near, the near enemy of this is called apathy. And it's when we're really not connected to what's going on. We really don't see that closely. We don't care to see a lot of times. There's like some distance. And we feel, it can feel like equanimity because we're saying, I'm okay with this, you know, this is cool, or whatever, however language we use. But really inside we just close down. We can't really face what's happening. So we, we have to be honest with ourselves. You know, is it apathy or is it really a sense of um, connectivity but feeling balanced? So where are we really coming from so that we have the, the clarity to see what's going on? We can see it from all sides. Resting the mind before it falls into extremes. The extreme of reactivity or the extreme of apathy. So sometimes... Um, Something happens in the outer world and we haven't handled it well. I mean, most of the time this happens. We haven't handled it well. And we need to do something about it. And mostly what we need to do is take a look at what's going on inside of ourselves. So we, we always have a second chance in that way. So I want to tell you a story about how there was something that went on in my life um, with a neighbor, and she came to uh, the house, and she was really upset about some something that we were doing on our particular piece of land that she didn't like because it was so close to her land. Well, actually, we were kind of... Um, clearing out around the fence line so that it could be a a place where a fire engine could go if there were fire on the land. And so she didn't like it very much because it was right next to her house. And so she came to the house and she was really, really upset. And yeah, I I understood also that her husband was not very well and um, she didn't have a lot of balance then. So she was really raising her voice to me, and it was hard for me to be with it because I, I get nervous when things like that happen, and I can't think straight a lot. So I was saying things that I sort of weren't thought out well and coming from reactivity, not being connected with myself, really. So the, the um, conversation went on, and it got to a place where I could see that I, I wasn't doing well, and so I, you know, I just had to put the Dharma duct tape on my mouth. And I said to her, I think I better not say anything because I'm not coming from a clear place right now, and I need to be careful. And so she was very quiet, and she settled down, and she said, That's true. You're not coming from a very place, a good place right now. So, and it was like, ah, you know, I felt like I just wanted to say something, 
and I don't even want to tell you what I wanted to say, <laughs> but I didn't say it, you know, and I just let that moment go by, and I felt like, okay, I gave myself a second chance. You know, I'd messed up a little bit the first time, and I wasn't going to mess up again. So remember that. You, you have a second chance, and you have a second chance to really take a moment, look at what's going on inwardly, and then be careful. Make a choice of what you're going to do, no matter what they say next. So, the near enemy and the far enemy really know where you are with that, so you do the right thing afterwards in response. So, in closing, I'd like to Um, tell you a story that kind of gives you a sense of equanimity. It's bigness, it's wideness, it's ability to really feel the beauty of life within you, within us. So this is a very special time when it was the second to the last time that I was with Manindraji because I knew he was getting on, so I went to visit him in, in India. And one of the things he always wanted to do is to um, take a boat with me down um, the Ganges River. And so I wanted to fulfill his, um, his wish. So I went there and we did some seeing of, of the holy sites. And we were in Sarnath, uh, where the Buddha expounded on the Four Noble Truths, and then we went to uh, the Ganges River in Varanasi. So we took off early in the morning, before dawn. And it was our last day in India, in that afternoon, I was going to fly to Calcutta to go home. So we, we were on this boat and going down the river. And um, it was before dawn. It was a very clear, warm mor- morning so I'm remembering on um, the right side, there were these burning ghats where the, the, they were having cremations. And oftentimes, most of the time, there would be these uh, pyres of wood, and they'd be burning, and there'd be a body on top. And it was, the boat would be slow enough so that you could see that bodies were burning, and there were you know, people all around, in, in that particular, from the family. So one after another. And so there was death here. And then on, on the left side was, you know, the new birth of a new day. There's the sun rising over the um, land next to the river. And so this mind, uh, heart taking in, here's birth, and here's death, and it's so close. Then you hear some of the wailing going on of the families that were close to those who had died, and the sorrow that's going on with that. And here I was, sitting next to a, a teacher who was like a grandfather to me, and and Manindra was, you know, that kind of a teacher that he would just hold your hand. 
he would just hold your hand if you were near him, you know. And so he was holding my hand, and then I had some Dharma friends with me, and they were beautiful friends. And it was really such a joy to be there, you know, and also to might not ever see my teacher anymore. Deeply grateful for that. And so here was sorrow and happiness, birth and death. And I felt so rich in my life to have the Dhamma. And yet, you know, there were these poor people coming around in other boats asking for donations and all of that and being in, in garbs that were, garments that were soiled and, you know, they, I've had a different life. And so you see, you see that, too, the richness and the poorness of life. So on one side, you see something beautiful, and the other side, you see something that makes your heart sink. And this is life. You know, how can we hold all of that? Just holding all of life as it is, instead of rushing towards one side, running away from the other. It's all there for us to know, for us to be with and learn from, and to become stronger from, hopefully. It's all available to us. So I'd like to end with this beautiful poem by William Stafford, and it's from his book, The Way It Is. And this is his poem, The Way It Is. So I'm reading parts of it so I don't uh, have to read it all. But there's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change. People wonder about what you are pursuing. You have to explain about the thread, but it's hard for others to see. While you follow it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen, people get hurt or die, and you suffer and get old. Nothing you do can stop time's unfolding. Don't ever lose the thread. So let's sit for a little while and let the words dissolve. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.